Jeremy, how are you? I'm really well. How are you, Damon? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Although I have a a heavy topic that's been on my mind, and I was hoping that maybe you and I could have a conversation about it. A few things jumped out to me recently, and one of them is how many existential threats seem to be swirling around at the same time, which on one hand is disheartening, of course, and daunting. And then on the other hand is totally normal because that's how life always is. But I do think that it bears some responsibility for how we see ourselves in the present moment, but also how we see ourselves in the future when we realize that through climate change and pandemics and natural disasters, etc., that there are a lot of things that will most likely creep up and happen while we're alive. And then the second part comes around from thinking about how we meet and understand ourselves. So I, I wanted to open the question up around how we see the future, how we see our own refinement, and thinking about things through the lens of either optimism or pessimism. So I guess the first question I would ask you is, what do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself an optimist or more of a pessimist? I'm an optimist. I have figured that out by talking to pessimists. (laughs) (laughs) And I think of myself as a rationalist, probably a lot of people do. I also am so rational that I know that my thoughts and feelings and thought process and self-labeling is demonstrably not rational. But maybe that's an aside. I'll just stick with optimists since that was the question asked. Right. And what have you noticed about pessimists? What jumps out when you hear someone speaking and living through that lens? Well, it's worst case scenario. It's catastrophic. It's jaundiced. It's cynical. And I guess I want to say that with sympathy first (laughs) and to say it doesn't seem, you know, a lot of fun to be there. And of course, that's just my perception of you know, where they are inside from what I'm hearing, what they say on the outside. But I think that it is really about hope and you can say really negative things and really critical things with a sense of hope. And on the other hand, you can say positive things without hope. And so to me, hope is kind of the difference between optimism and and pessimism. Is it safe to say that hope is somewhere aligned with something good is about to happen? or can happen? I'm so glad you said that because I have been smiling and laughing for the last maybe 10 months about something I saw last summer. I was at a hip bubble tea shop in Seattle. Remember when people could Mm -hmm. do things like go to hip bubble tea shops and go (laughs) to places like Seattle? (laughs) And there was a wall length, inspirational Instagram ready poster that said, always believe something wonderful is about to happen. Hmm. And my wife and daughter and I thought that was so funny as just an organizing belief system. And we were sort of fascistically rigid in a ironic way about trying to enforce it for the week that followed. 
<laughs> so, you know, if someone was down or someone's like, well, I don't know, or you're thinking about it, or just even in an idle moment, always believe something wonderful is about to happen. And it is so funny because even if you do it in a funny way, if you have that as your lens, it's just like, low. This Ethiopian restaurant we found, it's the something wonderful that's about to happen or <laughs> this wrong turn, but that took us to this beautiful view. That's the something wonderful that's about to happen. Or gosh, I am helping get my mother-in-law out of the ER. And that is a situation that I would have thought was dark, but it must be something wonderful that is about to happen. And that really powered me, not just through that week, but we still talk about it all the time. And it's just sort of this, this catchword. So I think maybe if you can be hopeful, but also sort of laugh <laughs> at the same time. So do we have free will around maintaining that optimism? Or is this pop psychology, fake it till you make it kind of stuff? What do you think? I think, you know, we have these major frameworks that we understand the world and we filter the phenomena we see through. And if you think something wonderful is about to happen, that's the thing you'll be sort of looking for and checking for. And if you think you're about to be taken advantage of or preyed upon or things are going to fail again, that is probably what you're going to find. And I think it's not because one is true and the other isn't true or that one makes or manifests its own truth. But I think what we experience is through those filters and there is no objective experience and you can pick a pretty huge range of filters from work, a simulation of a higher or alien species to we are manifestations of the divine image of God to we're silly overwrought monkeys with low impulse control to we're the greatest and the bravest and the freest people. And we must lead that vanguard and so on and so forth. Whatever you kind of filter is what you're going to find. And I think having the power to pick your filter is an opportunity that we should have more fun with. So interesting. The reason this topic is so front of mind for me is that as a high performance coach, I am dealing with clients who are struggling somewhat with maintaining that type of filter. And yet I also am dealing with clients who are maybe more elite in what they're doing, that they've allowed themselves not to let the external dictate the internal. And so even though the set of goals may have shifted because of sheltering in place, et cetera, the way they are holding on to that mindset of optimism has been really impressive to me. And also the reason I wanted to unpack the conversation is that impressive on one hand and on the other hand, almost out of balance in the sense that is just so in their nature to be optimistic and they don't know how to see things other than now what and something good is about ready to come around the corner. So I'm just fascinated with those types of people who can kind of pull that off and stick the landing. And I am also fascinated with optimism as sort of the sun that we orbit around. 
I'm wondering how we plan for the future with all of those things in mind through our goal system and even just how we sync our minds and our bodies so that presumably that optimistic filter is how we want to enter into the next moment that we're in to be able to sort of be anti-fragile and continue to stay locked into that more optimistic angle. Well, those are two different things. You know, being anti-fragile and being optimistic aren't necessarily the same thing. You know, pessimists may be more prepared for disaster and optimists may be, you know, more resilient after the fact, but only if they survive. For example, I think that optimism is also not necessarily the end goal. I think if you say you want to be happy, then I guess having that hope helps. I think if you want to do things, having hope is necessary. At the same time, my observation is if you can observe either inclination with some dispassion, that is a sense of peace, which is maybe more powerful than happiness or unhappiness. And you can just say, you know, this is a time I'm down and I get down sometimes. And this is a time I'm up and I get up sometimes. And not forcing yourself up or forcing yourself down. You know, what kind of scares me with people who are super optimistic perpetually and almost preternaturally is I worry that it can be forced. And that's its own strain. You know, I don't want you to have to be at war with how you actually feel inside or feel like the way you feel is is bad. And I think that's actually more corrosive than pessimism or any of the other kind of ills we cited. So it sounds like you're framing this a little bit more like a mindfulness frame where we're observing and maybe splitting the subject object a bit so that we can notice and recognize what we feel and how we feel, but not judge it so much. Yeah. I think that there's so much pleasure to be taken in observation and because everything we see goes through ourselves first, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, our mind, our hands, and so forth, then if we can recognize the filters, maybe we can diminish them and just have a greater ability to take in a wider lens of phenomena, if you will. And I've been thinking about that a lot the last few weeks, because when I think about what I'm not doing or what I haven't done, what I don't have, what I don't know, uncertainty, the future, that's a pretty heavy load and it's hard and it's sad making. And when I shift to, can I observe what's here? What I do have, what I have done, where I am right now, but then beyond that, just everything that is, the sky outside, the trees, 8 billion other people, all the history that came before me, the cosmos, you know, the rivers running, the clouds parting, birds flying in the air. I mean, that is profoundly stirring and so much more than anything I could have or do ever. And so to me, that's Booing, and it's not from optimism because there's nothing to hope for and think I'm going to get. It's just from, I guess, what you'd call mindfulness and being able to drop as many of those filters as I can and get out of myself 
and just see what is, which is just so wondrous hmm. and constantly unfolding. It's beautiful imagery. And I noticed my own body relaxing as you were saying all of that, especially with regard to the 8 billion people and all that's come before. And in some ways, it lessens the burden when I hear that on my nervous system, really, and how I speak with myself. And the way I think about self-talk is that it's the relationship that we have with ourself that's facilitated through a dialogue that we're having with ourselves. And I think that some of the filtration around this particular conduit from the world to ourselves, our nervous system, is such a valuable one to monitor and to observe and then also to shift focus away from that being the epicenter. As you said, 8 billion people, the planet, the history, the birds, the moment. There's a lot more going on than my need to, you know, 100% be fixated with what I'm saying to myself in symbols and language in my head. Well, you know, my joke is that step one is to get over yourself and there's no step two. (laughs) That's it. And you can rephrase that in a million different ways, right? You can be present and then there's no step two. You know, you can find peace and there's no step two, or you can find connection and there's no step two. So it's not even a conduit. It's, it's it. Right. And so how do you square that with ambition and drive and your own personal goals and and maybe even your purpose as a human that potentially extends outside of just you and your own successes? How do you square, here we are, get over yourself with, I want to be a force for good, for change, for creation, for communitas expansion. Do you see any conflict between those two things? I have so many different answers and they'll probably (laughs) contradict each other and that's okay. So I think one, the sort of highest level answer perhaps is to observe that and to say, I want these things and observe the wanting just like I might be feeling high and observe that I'm feeling high. And so I can have the wanting and also have a pocket of peace and distance and presence and perspective that's outside it. So I'm not only the wanting. And then the wanting is something that then I pursue in any particular moment. And it's like, okay, what do I want to do with that right now? And, you know, and then I do something and I often have judgment. This isn't good enough. This isn't far enough along. This is taking too long. Or I get feedback. Yeah, that's fine. But, you know, it's not something we want to buy or, yeah, 11 people like this. But, you know, it's not the size of the audience that you can make a living on. And then I guess I kind of process that. And to me, it's like what ratio, how much of myself is consumed by that kind of determines a lot of how happy I am. Because if I'm doing, I'm pretty happy. And if I'm at peace and present and observing, I'm pretty happy. 
And if I'm thinking and judging and comparing, I'm pretty unhappy. And when I get to that state, I think step one is just to know that I'm in it. And there may be no step two. (laughs) Again, you know, if I know that I'm in it, okay, let me be in it. In the same way I might be in the rain or a state of attraction or a state of excitement or avidity watching a sports game or appetite in front of a big meal. Mm. So there is that, that pocket of peace and there's that pocket of acceptance. And then the next moment will come and hopefully I can recenter and find action or, and this is the whole other different track. I can kind of move to a different dimension. I mean, that whole ambition and judgment and even what I do is often in the sort of thinking dimension, the head. But then there is this whole other dimension of just phenomena. What I can, you know, see, feel, touch that should always be available to me too. So, can I kind of move to my body and say like, what is literally in front of my eyes right now? What are the smells? Can I hear three sounds? Can I take a breath and feel my lungs? And that's not in contradiction with whatever the thoughts are, but it's in this sort of totally different dimension and everything that happens in one kind of doesn't happen in the other and vice versa. And, you know, I'd argue there's more dimensions than that, but I'll start there as an answer. Yeah. I like it. You know, one thing that I typically use as a, a training tool as a mental model when I work with people often comes off in a counterintuitive way when I introduce it. And that is around developing a pre-mortem with regard to what the future may look like for you. A plane crashes, people come onto the scene to do a post-mortem. The plane has already crashed. And why did it crash? What did the black box say? All those things. But in this manner, we're, we're actually trying to anticipate the areas where we go nuclear, where we get locked up, where we crash before they happen based on our tendencies and past experiences and external forces. So when we think about the future, I agree with you that it's not so simple as being optimistic or pessimistic. And I also agree with you that getting over myself and being in the moment typically allows me to see more clearly and and take the next best step, which ultimately sort of leads to some sense of control over whatever type of future I want to manifest or however I want to be when I get there. But this whole idea of doing a pre-mortem, I think a lot of people right now are in a space where they recognize that there are going to be tougher, more trial types of situations that are ahead. How do we identify those things and then set our intention so that we show up to that moment with the the type of filter system that we're most proud of and that, that matches our value set? I'm a huge fan of going to it and just saying, okay, let's say that happened. And then let's say the next six terrible things happened. Can we just kind of be in the worst case scenario and just sort of talk it through? And what happens is that if you can get ahead on purpose, get ahead of your own fears. And if I can go a little bit longer and just go, okay, let's just say all those dominoes fall then what will I do? And can I just sort of sit and be in that situation and soak it in 
for a couple minutes, then how do I feel? Because I think when really bad things happen, we actually often react pretty well and with a fair amount of agility. And it's just not knowing and waiting and fearing that is much more punishing. I think at each level, you kind of have the level of engagement you can have, but just go deep and go dark and just kind of hang out. Because the other thing with these really negative thoughts is that they are short, but they're also get pushed away so quickly. And we have them for like five seconds or much less than five seconds usually. And to really just have a negative feeling, even to have a fear or to kind of be in your worst case scenario for like two minutes, it's just a really long time. And you can give it all the attention that it can bear. And then it often just doesn't have a lot more to say and moves on. So that's my version of the pre-mortem, which is less strategic and more, you know, kill your anxiety with kindness, if you will, or, or, or go deeper. Right. I mean, it has a twinge of optimism in that remedy or mechanism that you're talking about where go darker than your darkest thoughts. I can see the glint in your eye as you say that. And if you're able to practice that and in your case, you're pretty clear of how long those dark thoughts last. There's hope behind those dark thoughts. And, and that hope is, in a sense, counterintuitive, where you're going to just give them airtime and you're going to take it even farther and see how far you can pull that thread. And it sounds like that that practice itself is a method of using optimism to do an okie doke on your dark or negative thinking, which is, I think, really informative and really helpful for people to do. I mean, one thing that I have been doing myself personally lately in times of a little extra stress where I maybe will wake up in the middle of the night and my mind is active and I don't get the sense that I'm going to be able to immediately go back to bed. My instinct is to grab my phone or read or worry, ruminate on whatever it is that woke me up. But lately I've been just sitting up and getting into more of a meditative position and just saying, okay, well, I guess my mind is active right now and it has something it wants to say. Might as well sit up and listen to it. And mm. And what I found is that probably within five minutes, my mind is like, okay, dude, quit paying attention to us. <laughs> we're, we <laughs> exactly. don't, we're done. All right. And then I'm tired again. And then I just lay back down. It's almost like I, I outboard negative rumination in my own head. So it sounds similar to your pre-mortem story for how to deal and cope. And I also think in our society, that's just something that we were not trained to do. You know, don't look at the negative bad thing because then you'll just go towards it. And even in high performance, I find myself saying, we go where we look. And, and as I'm saying that right now, I'm questioning whether that's something that I should continue to say because it isn't absolute like that. You don't go to the darkest of dark places when you perform that exercise. But maybe on a more meta level, you're understanding that, hey, I'm going to perform that exercise. So what you're really looking at is the optimism underneath it all. So where is this coming from, the questions about optimism and the future? Is there some specific ways that's come up for you this week or for you know people you've been coaching or counseling? 
Yeah, I think that probably the the most pressing question that I'm up against is something in my profession, but also just personally is how can we plan for the future? Yeah. Right. And it feels like uh, on a systemic level, we plan by putting our money in 401ks, you know, taking relatively good care of ourselves and et cetera. And lo and behold, there are, are forces that might be beyond our control. So do we need to have agility to properly manifest the things that we are after? Optimism? Do we need to set a firmer list of goals? And I think that these larger questions are on the the front of a lot of people's minds these days. And I talk a lot about state management, so not necessarily managing stress or managing time. And people are like, okay, cool, I get that, but how is that going to prepare me for what is around the corner that doesn't have an easy answer? But I do think that under the hood, there are some tools, and I think your explanation of optimism and pre-mortem and even just that sense of being mindful, being aware, getting over ourselves, those are really, in, in my judgment, really important threads for us to be pulling right now as we unknowingly, sometimes unwittingly, are trying to map out what is the next week, month, quarter, half year, what, what do those things look like for me? I think it's incredibly hard to deal with and live with uncertainty. And that's what we're all experiencing right now. I mean, I know just week by week, I don't know what days my wife will be going into work. I don't know if my parents should visit as they usually do and spend time with my daughter or if she's more of a disease vector. And I don't know how my whole field of writing will work professionally going forward. I don't know how politics and the economy of our country will go going forward. You raise the specter of climate change. I think that we have had clear, consistent, and dire warnings, and now we're experiencing an event that is not that, but that suggests these things that people say can happen can just happen. And then you can be in an uncertain or catastrophic state indefinitely, and it can get worse. And the question then is, what to do? Do you kind of Pollyanna it and look to optimism and not only in a negative way, but to say, hey, this is how we get things done. We just get them done. And if we're going to do things, we might as well do them with as positive an attitude as possible. That will be more effective. And of course, if we're alive... Why not enjoy life? And if we're doing things, why not enjoy them? Or do we observe and accept? Do we spin negative, which is natural? And, you know, I know I do all those things. I just feel like the power that I have when I'm observing is transcendent. And by observing, I just mean rather than running away from fear can I see what it's like to be in uncertainty and how long I can be in uncertainty? And I think I'll find if I sit with it for like two, three, four minutes that it's doable and it has a lot of beauty in it. And there's also going to be a lot of stillness and certainty within it. 
Like everything that's already happened in human and other history has already happened. (laughs) That's uncertainty outside of uncertainty. And there are other elements that are not necessarily these macroeconomic indicators that are also pretty stable, seemingly to me. And what I found is I get up and I'm sad and I'm scared often. And I go and I sit with it and I kind of settle down and I make peace with big trends as best I can. And then I try to move forward in individual moments and take the action I can. And I get pulled back into the thoughts and I shift dimension into the body or other things or just those pockets of peace of saying, okay, this is what I'm observing myself think and and feel. And going a little bit further and saying, okay, let's just say all these things happen. Can I be okay with that? Because I think step one is being okay with what's actually happening. It's interesting to hear you say all that. I, I have a, a group of clients who are, are more frontline type workers and are experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety right now, of course. And one thing that came out through our conversations was something that I had prompted them to consider in this particular group was firefighters said, let's just say you arrive on a car crash. And as you get out of the truck, you see that there are two cars and they're both flipped over. You see blood, you see glass, you see gas, and you've never been there before. This accident just happened. What are you instructing yourself to do? in that moment. And once the people that I had asked this question to kind of grasped what I was going after here, they said, well, we have a set of protocols that we follow. And so I said, okay, let's press pause on that. Now let's say you rolled up and it was a house fire. And so entirely different event and flames are bursting through the windows and you're not sure if there are people in the house. What do you do there? And they said, well, we have a set of protocols. And so what I stumbled on was, is it possible to create a set of protocols around the things that make you feel most anxious? Because let's be honest, if you know you or I rolled up to a car accident, that's going to be one of the more stress-inducing, anxiety-provoking things that we could ever do. And part of the reason is we're not trained for that. But another part is, is that we don't have any protocol for how to address the situation. And what really jumped out to me listening to you speak just now was that you have a protocol and it doesn't necessarily have to be in concrete where it's just this way every time, but you have a protocol around how you approach things that make you feel scared and anxious. You have a protocol around how you approach viewing the future and all the uncertainty And you have a protocol around how to stay engaged in the present moment. And I think that that's probably, to me, one of the more important bits and and nuggets out of this conversation is it's not necessarily the protocol per se. It's the awareness to run your 
experiment through some of the protocols that you have loosely set up for yourself. And I think that as functioning human beings, if we consider what elements may assist us and we're, we're rolling up on the scene and what do we do, what are our thoughts, behaviors, actions, then I think there's a sense of underlying optimism that when the moment arises, I will have an idea of how I want to construct my protocols when I get there. And I think that that might be really calming, even if the future isn't rosy, or even if we're unable to have assurance about what that looks like, that when we get there, when we take that step and we're in that moment, that we'll have some semblance of a, a protocol that we can lean on and, and run the experiment through. There's a great saying, I've heard it in two books I've read recently. In one, it was attributed to the Navy SEALs. In the other, it was attributed to Bruce Lee. So Bruce mm-hmm. Lee was a Navy SEAL, apparently. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it is, you know, we don't rise to the occasion. We fall to our level of training. So that's what I think of when I think of those protocols. You know, you're not going to be in a crisis and it's going to make you better, but you're going to have these trainings or rituals or routines or outlooks, if you will, that you can run in those situations and that's what's going to get you through it. And that's what will, you know, hopefully help you thrive or enjoy. And I think you talk about house fires or car accidents. I mean, we're just getting stimulus all the time Mm -hmm. and every day have dozens of things that sort of internally can reckon on the scale of a fire or a car accident for our kind of internal first responders, our emotions, our gut and our prefrontal cortex. And so if those have somebody watching them and they have training to run, then I think they can perform a lot better than they would otherwise. Right. I I run a lot of my programming through the human consciousness state of flow. And that is a heavily peer-reviewed state. And it is now kind of been deemed as when we perform our best and feel our best. And I think underneath that even, there's meaning to life when we enter into that state. And it's interesting because how it relates to this conversation is that there's a cycle that we have to go through to be able to get into flow. And the first stage of the cycle is struggle and then release and then flow and then recovery. And I'm particularly honed in on the struggle phase and really sort of framing it as we all need to learn how to struggle more effectively so that another Navy SEAL-ism is to embrace the suck. And so understanding that struggle is just part of the human process is important so that we don't generate all the filth, all the muck of the self-talk that compounds some of the pain that comes along with the struggle. And then the recovery part, when it's over, it's over. And we don't spend time ruminating or second guessing or judging or beating ourselves up. I think that those are areas in the human condition that we end up getting tripped up and faltering in both of those stages of the cycle where the struggle ends up being frustrating and the recovery ends up being this rumination, second guessing, hindsight's twenty twenty type stuff 
or also just not valuing getting off the wheel for a little while, in which all those things can pay a heavy price on our, our process and our protocol. So to me, like thinking about this whole conversation as we can settle into the level of our training. And I think within that training, we need to understand that there will be parts that feel like struggle and there'll be times when we want to keep pushing where we need to reset and let our foot off the gas and that those are really important ways to mitigate our state, which then helps us to keep that perception open to be able to see and remember. I think it was the author George Leonard that said, we need to remember the things that we've forgotten. And I think about that a lot for turbulent times and stress levels. We know stress narrows focus and limits creativity and innovation. And so to put those blinders on and then try to problem solve our way out is a tricky thing to do. And that's why making sure that we have those protocols in place up front where that is the trigger instead of the trap, I think is super fundamental to being able to keep the aperture wide open. Big picture framing, something I call on a lot is this idea of being at the beach and the idea that we think we're our lives were supposed to be at the beach and that it's just sort of mainly pleasant and we're doing things wrong when it's not calm and sandy. But I think that we're actually in the waves and life is being in the waves and we're very rarely actually just in a sort of calm area for very long. And so you're just getting hit over and over by waves. And sometimes there are things we label good. Sometimes there are things we label terrible. Sometimes there are things we label not a big deal either way, or just something that happened or boring or interesting or whatever. And the trick is just, it's not wrong. You're not doing anything wrong if you're being hit in the waves. You're just all of a sudden start paying attention. And sometimes the waves make you pay attention by hitting you harder and faster. And what do you do when you're in waves, which is, is our life, is our lived reality? Well, it can feel like you're drowning. If you feel like, oh, I I got sucked from shore, I'm in the waves. And you can drown, sure. But you can also swim. You can also float. And you can surf. And you can figure out how to play with it. And I think uncertainty is, of course, one of those big waves. And it's that constant wave, too. And... Can you, you know, not hide from it, not duck and catch your breath and come back up and just kind of not drown in uncertainty, but can I swim in uncertainty? Can I float in uncertainty? Can I even surf in uncertainty? I think, you know, it just sort of reframes it as a, as a game, as a fun challenge, as a flow activity. And to me, that's, that's something I return to in my more enlightened moments. So I'll sum up with some final words of wisdom from Dr. Michael Gervais, who mentioned optimism being likened to mental toughness allows us to be flexible, vulnerable, nimble, creative, humorous, allows us to stay in it, and also allows us to let go. And when you bring up the imagery around being in the waves, that that's sort of where my mind goes. And I think maybe the final thoughts are, in any given moment, we're either constricting space or creating space. And I think that the challenge and the assignment really as human beings is to have a better understanding of what ideal mindset 
allows us to feel that sense of creating space as opposed to constricting space. And that's a personal philosophy. And then underneath that are our thoughts, our actions, and our beliefs. And if we can line those things up with those things having the tendency to keep that space being open and feel like we're creating some space, then I think we have an opportunity to see that we're in that surf and then even to surf some of that choppy stuff as well. So I really like how you frame that. Well, that's lovely. Thank you. So I think we've made it one hour into the future. (laughs) I feel more optimistic. Thank you for that. And I feel more attached to my protocols And I feel more in control of getting over myself. I think all that typically leads to a a fairly productive and healthy type of snowballing that occurs. So thank you, Jeremy, for providing all of those tools and insights. It's super helpful. Back at you. Step one, (laughs) and maybe there is no step two. I'm I'm seeing a lot more space, which is great. Whether I, I don't know if I created or contracted or it's just, it's just there. That's what's wonderful too. Likewise, likewise. And we want to thank everyone who tuned in to Stimulus and Response. We hope that both Stimulus and Response was beneficial, helpful. Again, I'm Damon Valentino, a high-performance coach. Jeremy N. Smith, surfer of the mind. Here we are, Hanging 10, Stimulus and Response. Thank you, everyone. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy M. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins of Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive.